You may be seated in his presence. I'll tell you what, church, that song, that ought to song, that song ought to make you homesick. And I think you'll see what I mean a little bit later. Songs like that make me homesick. Well, church, eternity is our destination this morning. And uh, that's what I mean when I talk about being homesick. Homesick for what our God has in store for us on the other side of heaven. Let's pray together. Uh, and we'll get into our, our scripture this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this worship team, for the music you bring us. So much in that music we just sang is, um, is all we need in preaching this morning. Empower our hearts to take it into our hearts, to seal us in it, uh, to make us walk in your word this morning. Uh, we surrender now and give all this back to you. We want to hear from you, not from me. Uh, we want to hear from your word. Uh, and we look forward to what you have for us. But more than that, we want to grow up in what you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, worship team. And thank you all for being here this morning. Eternity is our destination this morning. And that means, church, that we must navigate time. And sometimes, Tim, we're just not that good with time. Uh, we're pretty good at responding to things in the short run. Uh, but not so much when time stretches things out. Longer time uh, tends to breed denial in our hearts and our minds. For instance, if, if people got a hacking cough and a chronic disease one hour after smoking their first cigarette, probably nobody would smoke, right? Uh, if every day this year was 10 degrees warmer than the same day last year and that continued, climate change would probably become a more urgent issue for us. A real challenge for human beings is to get much better at recognizing what is stake in the long run. Somebody say the long run. This morning I want to encourage you to consider uh, and recognize the long run stakes of eternity, of eternity. And I don't want to arouse uh, a lot of factual curiosity about the details of heaven and hell. I do desire, however, to elevate uh, our hope, specifically the longing that we need to have, ought to have, and do have in our souls, our minds, our hearts, um, to be in God's immediate presence through Christ. C.S. Lewis said it this way, and this refers to the homesickness. He says, I must keep myself, keep alive in myself the desire for my true country. And when he speaks of his true country, Mary Lou, he's speaking of heaven. My desire for my true country. And he goes on to say, I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and help others do the same. Well, in our series, uh, God's Handwriting, uh, we have gone through five events that feature God's handwriting on our hearts, on tablets, on the wall, last week in the sand. And finally today, there goes one of those BMW M3s. I am a car guy, and that is quite a car right there. I love preaching in the city. It's really fun. There's another one out there, too. If you can get a ride in that before you leave, that'd be great. Anyway, um, so Jesus writing in the sand last week. And then finally this week, in our sixth chapter of God's handwriting, we're looking at how God writes in the book of life. And that's our title this morning, Written in the Book of Life as we stare into the long run of heaven. So we're getting into John's um, uh, Revelation, the last book of the Bible in Revelation. And I want to say that when we turn to the book of Revelation, Kathy, uh, when we turn there from the rest of the New Testament, it can feel a bit like entering a foreign country. Somebody say amen. 
<clears throat> Instead of stories and letters and plain statements of fact, we arrive in a land, Alan, of trumpets and angels and dragons and bottomless pits. <clears throat> it's hard to know what to make of it. But I will say, and he's not here this morning, they're on, <coughs> excuse me, they're on vacation. <coughs> wow. Um, the pollen's getting me. <clears throat> but uh, John Crook's study in Revelation, <coughs> I, need a, I need some water. Um, but uh, yeah, somebody will get me that. <coughs> so sorry, excuse me. The preacher's worst nightmare. I don't have germs, he said as he came up. <laughs> Perfect, thank you. <clears throat> all right, that ought to help. So when we turn to this book of Revelation, it is a bit like a foreign country. Some of the imagery you'll find is manageable. Some of it is a bit obscure. Uh, it is eschatology, it's apocalypse, it's prophecy, it's epistle, and we're going to keep all of that in mind as we get into it this morning. But listen, the images... And, and um, metaphors that we see are best communicated by corresponding images and stories and metaphors. So I'm going to go that way. And I am going to rely on C.S. Lewis, who I find throughout my history as a preacher to be the best commentator on heaven and hell that I have found in practical theology throughout uh, the many years. Now, summer travel is upon us. How many have traveled so far? I know some are back from Italy just uh, yesterday. Uh, travel is, is on the schedule. If you're flying anywhere this summer, like Sue and I will be in August, uh, you have to wonder, <clears throat> don't you? You have to wonder about your trip because lots of things could happen. You head to BWI. You arrive at the proper terminal, which I always think is a bit creepy to go to a terminal when you're going on a trip. Um, you're not sure these days, uh, Yvonne, what lies ahead of you when you go to fly somewhere. It might be, Brendan, the first step to an island paradise that awaits. Or it might be that your baggage is lost. Or there's a fight on the plane. Or you are, a storm makes you land in Cleveland and get stuck in Cleveland. Uh, or most possibly these days, and it happened this weekend to thousands and thousands of people, your flight is actually canceled. Okay, we're coming up with more. <laughs> All right, I get it. Got it. Okay, got it. I get it. Thank you. Everyone's trying to help me out. All right. All right. Thank you. <clears throat> anyway, so you find yourself uh, with your flight canceled, and there you are stuck in a 21st century hell on earth, sleeping on the floor of Concourse C at BWI and wandering around the terminal day after day looking for a Chick-fil-A. Where's my Chick-fil-A? Now, our first look at eternity is like that times a million. So let's walk through the final five verses of Revelation 20. I want to encourage you at home and here, open your phones, open your Bibles to, the, to Revelation 20 and 21. And we're going to begin in the last five verses of Revelation 20. And this first stop, these five verses, I want to call hell no. Hell comma no. Somebody, if you dare, say hell no. I know that's hard to say in church, but we're right in the passage. So open your Bibles. Turn to these last five verses of chapter 20. Both of our texts this morning belong to what um, 
scripture commentators call the last battle. C.S. Lewis' last book in his Narnia Tales was called The Last Battle, and it's about these two chapters. Here is where, here in these last five verses, chapter 20, is where Jesus takes on Satan himself. He throws him into the lake of fire that we know is hell, and here we find also the final judgment of those who have followed Satan. And I'm going to read in part, so listen up if you don't have a Bible in front of you, but follow along if you do. Starting in verse 11 of chapter 20 of Revelation. Then I saw a great white throne, and him, Jesus, who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what was written in the books. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And look, Grace City, we wince. We wince at this talk of hell, and it would be worrying if, it, if we did not. It is an extremely, profoundly difficult arena to take on. But at some level, church, we feel the need for this. Our sense of justice and outrage seems to demand it. So, and most often in ignorance, so we, we often speak of hell just in general. Social media, for instance, is full of references <clears throat> to hell. As a matter of fact, Andrew French wrote an essay not too long ago that said, social media is literally hell. That was the title of the essay. We've seen a lot of it in the headlines in 2022 so far. The story of a baby born in uh, a Ukraine bomb shelter last month carried the international headline, Welcome to Hell. Reports in Buffalo and Uvalde speak of families going through hell over and over, and one official in Texas pronounced that the shooter would be, quote, would be eternally damned to the fires of hell. And we'd be horrified at the idea of a God, of a God who would smilingly welcome such people into his heaven as if to turn a blind eye to all the evil they've done. What kind of God would that be after all? But we are rightly wary of human justice and particularly of media justice. So this morning, let's check in with the God of the Bible for some understanding. And let's be profoundly humble. Would that be okay? Because... Uh, un the understanding of topics of heaven and hell, they do not yield lightly to our wisdom, to our understanding. So let's be profoundly humble as we approach this text. <clears throat> Here in Revelation 20, we have this graphic picture of hell. Here we see a final, inescapable prison in which all evil, all rebellion against God can be confined so that it can never exert its toxic influence again. And in the long run, church, apart from the cross of Christ, it seems that humankind faces disturbing outcomes in the long run of eternity. And did you notice in, the, in what I read and what you see in front of you, did you notice the books? There's a whole lot being written down in the books. God's handwriting is hard to miss in this passage. Look again at verse 12. It'll be on your screen at home. My life story is written up in books. And it's not judgment by bloggers or pundits or tabloid editors or even by our enemies. It is actually divine adjudication by complete disclosure. Somebody say, yikes. Yikes, complete disclosure about yourself, about me. <clears throat> but it's just. It's just. There. You see, there's no exceptions as we read this scripture. Did you notice both great and small are included? Did you see that? Shooters and victims. Russians and Ukrainians, you and me, we're all included in this network. 
Elsewhere, elsewhere in the Bible, it speaks of all being judged, so it's universal. It also speaks of each one being just, so it's individual, universal and individual, according to what they've done. And I can't hide behind my family or accomplishments or nation or party or even my good intentions. There are no exceptions or omissions here, and the Bible is clear, according to 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, that God will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. So it includes motives as well as, as actions. It includes secrets as well as public knowledge. Say yikes again. And nearly every time the New Testament speaks of God's judgment, it speaks of him judging justly or judging righteously. So apart from Christ, apart from Christ, when the verdict comes, we're told in Romans 3, Every mouth will be silenced. Why? There won't be any complaints. There won't be any appeals. We'll nod our heads in agreement, and we'll raise our hand up according to Romans 3, and we'll say, that's fair. You got, that's me. It's all out in front. And in the final consideration, there's only one verdict that matters, and it's the heaven's verdict. It's God's verdict. That when all my words, all my deeds, all my thoughts, all my intentions are there, written in God's handwriting in the book. Yikes. <clears throat> and we have to fa face the language here in this passage of what hell is like. Lake of fire. Church, you can't just call that disturbing. It's overwhelming. And listen, the one who speaks the most, the most and the most vividly of hell, you know who that is? It's Jesus himself. <clears throat> and his language is also imagery language. The gnashing of teeth, the outer and utter darkness. He speaks of Gehenna, which is the town garbage dump where fires are always burning. And if any of you went with us to Managua in the early days of that mission, uh, we were in the town garbage dump, weren't we, Mary Lou? Where the fires were always burning and 3,000 people lived in the town garbage dump and it felt like hell. Jesus uses that image, those garbage dumps where people live, go on and on throughout our civilization. All of it is imagery, but none of these are images of things that I want to experience. Is that fair? These, it, it's imagery, it's metaphor, but it's nothing that I want to have any taste of. And they're intended to be disturbing. So say it with me, hell no. Go ahead, hell no. C.S. Lewis wrote of <clears throat> seeing an inscription on a gravestone in London, and it said this on the gravestone, here lies an atheist all dressed up with nowhere to go. And as he turned away, Lewis commented, I'll bet he wishes that were so. C.S. Lewis understood hell, and I tend to, I'm inclined to agree with him, not as a destination where God locks people out of heaven, but as a dungeon we lock ourselves into. Stay with me here. Separation from God is how Lewis describes the essential idea of hell. Forever cut off from God's presence, eternally unable to know God's love and mercy, that would be a torture, would it not? Perhaps best described by being burned ceaselessly by fire. So the torture of separation is better seen not as punishment opposed, imposed by God, but as the natural and inevitable outcome of choices that humans themselves make and attitudes they themselves develop in opposition to God. Grace City, if it is to be complete, forgiveness needs to be accepted as well as offered. Let me say that again. If it's to be complete, forgiveness needs to be accepted as well as offered. One who admits no guilt can accept no forgiveness. 
But human beings, <clears throat> we are all too willing to continue to be hard-hearted. In his children's story, The Narnia Tales, seven books, <clears throat> Lewis does not, of course, in a children's book, describe hell in detail. But he does illustrate this idea in, when in the last battle, some creatures turn, choose to turn away from Aslan, the Christ figure, no matter how gladly he would welcome them. And you might remember, we talked about it last week, when these men that were accusing the woman caught of adultery and Jesus was riding in the sand and he straightens up, those men would have been just as welcome to approach Jesus as the woman, but they all chose to move away. We still, in our hearts, are rebellious toward God. So perhaps, church, it's unfair to ask how God can send people to hell when he's done all he can to stop them from going there in the first place through the sacrifice of his son. So hell no. Say it with me. Hell no. So after all of this, the text speaks of another book, another book that was opened, the book of life, where God's handwriting also appears, where a different vision is given. And I want to call this my second and last point today is give them heaven. Somebody say give them heaven. We often as coaches or even if we tell our children sometimes give them hell out there, I say tell, start telling them to give them heaven. Give them heaven. Here we have another destination in our sights. It's the first five verses of Revelation 21 follows right after the passage we just spent a few minutes in. And this destination is a radically merciful, completely accessible reality that we call heaven and the Bible calls heaven. And I know, church, I know you at home may just immediately roll the eyes back in your head and just give a nod to this idea of heaven. But I want you this morning to match this against the flatness of so many people's hopes when it comes to eternity. And I want to repeat it again. We're just not that good with the long run of time. In the long run, we tend to deny. We tend to ignore. We tend to say, it's not me. It's going to happen to somebody else. But eternity is here. We, we often think of heaven... Um, of things we like to do, like Nick Hornsby's great book, Fever Pitch, was a movie as well. He's into soccer. He's a soccer fanatic. A lot in my family are soccer fanatics. And he says in his book, when I die, just scatter my ashes about the pitch at the stadium because that would be a great way to spend eternity. Okay, that's fine, but it's pretty flat in the idea of God's heaven. It, it, after a while, there's something about hanging around the pitch that would fall a little short. But we are so often at fault for these ideas of heaven. When heaven comes into our mind, right, we still think in these blandly vacant pictures of harps and clouds and white togas and things like that. We just can't quite ever get our enthusiasm. But Lewis reminds us of our folly in our thinking about heaven. Listen to this. He says this. There is no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying such things as they do not want to spend eternity playing harps. The answer to such people is, watch this, if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. Lewis got a little mad at this. Church, all the scriptural imagery of heaven, harps and crowns and gold, etc., streets paved with gold, of course it is a merely symbolic attempt to express the inexpressible. Are you with me? To express the inexpressible. Music most, most firmly uh, expresses the idea of ecstasy and infinity. Crowns are mentioned just to suggest our share in the splendor and power and joy of God. Gold is mentioned just to suggest timelessness and preciousness of heaven. 
people, Lewis says this, people who take these symbols literally are idiots. They're just meant to express the inexpressible. I'm not calling you idiots. Lewis said that. So Grace City, in Christ, in Christ, we hold the keys to the antidote, the, the glorious opposite of separation from God to both hope in and to share with. So let's walk through chapter 21, first five verses of Revelation. Look at, look at this as this text begins in, in verses 1 and 2, 21, 1 and 2. Then I saw, John says, a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Grace City, here is something far more tangible and real than we are ever given to think. You can't get much more concrete than a city. Look out, look out of the BMI for a minute. This is, our, this is our best kind of image on a beautiful morning of the New Jerusalem, and it falls so short. You can't get much more concrete. And the only cities we know, Kathy, right, are, are built for privacy and safety and traffic flow and commerce. But imagine a city, Marissa, where none of that matters. Imagine a city where love is pervasive. Service comes naturally, where worship is on every tongue, where we traffic among angels and each other, and we are always within sight of the throne of God, where life grows on the trees and runs in the river. This is all biblical. It's all the image, but it is the human architecture of God's heaven, of God's design. And then look at verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place, place is now among the people and he may dwell with them. Right at the heart of this heaven is God. He's the creator. He's the Lord. He's the center of heaven. A radio program once asked famous people, got this whole lineup of famous people over a series of, of programs, and they asked them what they thought heaven would be like. And they all believed in heaven. Every one of them believed in heaven. Every one of them thought that they would be there. But not one of them mentioned God. It's as if heaven's just for me. With him is what the scripture says. With him, God is at the heart of this heaven. Without him is really the best two-word description of hell. With him is the best two-word description of heaven. And listen, if I have no interest in God on this side of heaven, why on earth would I have any interest in heaven at all? Because God's at the center of it. And then verse 4. I love this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Who needs that this morning? There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away, the scripture says. Now, you can't live in this world on this side of heaven without tears, without death, without mourning, without pain. But these will have no place in God's heaven. And it's hard to imagine, isn't it, that kind of life? It's just hard to imagine. It's hard to express. And it's really hard to imagine what kind of changed people will need to be to live that life. But here's the, here's the good news. That's God's job. He's the one who changes us. I thank you for your tears, Yvonne. That's God's job. Verse 5, the first beginning, beginning of verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. That includes you and me. That includes you and me. Not some superficial makeover, not a fresh coat of paint, 
I remember the story of the Queen Mary when it was docked and turned into a restaurant. They were removing the, the, the um, smokestacks from the Queen Mary, and they found that they had rusted completely through, and they were only being held up by dozens and dozens of coats of paint. That is not what we're talking about here. There's going to be a chance here to explore a new body, new work to do, new joy to experience, and new character in ourselves in order that we might be at home there. That's good news. Somebody say, that's good news. It's such a priceless, it's such an encouraging vision to grasp this radically positive image of the long run of creation, the long run of eternity. You only have to compare it with other people's attempts. Some of you know the, uh, the HBO um, uh, series called His Dark Materials. Some of you read it. Uh, Philip Pullman is a great, great writer. Uh, he is aggressively atheistic. Uh, and at the end of his dark materials, and I'm not going to give anything away, but at the end of, uh, of this book, the souls of the dead are released, uh, and they've been in this ghostly, pale, flat existence, and, and they're released finally in the end. And here's what they're looking forward to. At the end of his book, you see they're looking forward to as they escape the ghostly life of souls. And, and you think, is it, is it a real life back on earth? Is it, is it relationships? With people they miss, is it adventure? No, it is simply one thing in this, in this beautifully written, aggressively atheistic book. Here's what they're looking forward to, extinction. Extinction. As a matter of fact, he uses a, uh, a metaphor. He says they're, gonna be, they're so happy that they'll be like champagne bubbles rising to the top of a glass as they burst. And is that it, church? Is that the best that the atheistic imagination can come up with, can offer? Death as bubbles rising to the top of a glass? Nothing intimately personal. Nothing gloriously human. Nothing radically relational. Nothing splendidly communal. Just dissolution. Just annihilation. Just extinction. Where being gone is the best we might hope for. And the scripture says there's so much more. At the end of verse 5, God says, and I love this as an ending for our series, God's Handwriting. He says to us, to you and me, write this down. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Write it down, church. Write it down. God's handwriting now yields to our handwriting. As we come to the end of the series, church, throughout history, God has left a trail of evidence that he is trustworthy, that he is supremely trustworthy through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is check it out history. Check it out. You can, you can ask any of your neighbors, family, friends, those who you would love to have meet Christ. Say, check out God. He's trustworthy. He's true. It's working in my life. I, I, I love the stories of how we became a Christian. I love the stories of why we are still Christians even better because God is real. He's trustworthy and he's true. Write it down, church. Write it down. Well, I have, I have a point as, let's have the worship team come up. And I want to remind you of something Jesus said about hell that we don't often think about. And he said it to Peter uh, in Matthew chapter 16. You can look that up. You'll see it uh, at home on your screen. And here Jesus reassures Peter of something as he commissions Peter to lead his church going forward. Peter's not yet quite sure what that'll mean. But he says this to Peter. Do you remember? The gates of hell will not prevail against you. Remember that line, Tim? The gates of hell will not prevail against you. Now, as a young follower of Christ, and I don't know if this is true for you, but when I was a, you know, in my teenage years just starting to follow Christ, 
I understood this gates of hell will not prevail as uh, to mean something like Satan and his demons and their fiery darts and whatever would not be able to touch you. You'd be shielded from them. But Jesus has something completely different in mind here. Because gates are not offensive weapons, are they? Gates are defensive. Walls and fences to build, built to keep people out or in. Jesus is telling his church to be on offense. He's telling Grace City to be on offense. Our playbook includes storming the gates of hell. And those gates will not prevail. They cannot stand as we crash through them with grace to invite and to escort people into this heaven that God tells us about. People in the suburbs sometimes ask Sue and I if we're scared of Baltimore City. This is a suburban thing. That's why people in the suburbs often don't come to Baltimore City. And they ask us, are you scared? Down there? And I, my, my quick answer is to say, I'm more scared of the suburbs. And here's why. Jesus warns that we should be more, full, more fearful of things that can destroy our souls than our bodies. So I'm scared of apathy. I'm scared of complacency. And I'm scared of detaching myself, myself from, from those who are suffering. A great friend of mine, a, a member of Grace City Church who now lives in New York City, uh, asked me years ago, she said, Bob, uh, what's gonna, when you retire, what's going to keep you from becoming a regular white guy? And I have taken, <laughs> I've taken that to heart, like, because that would be easy for me to do. I can retire and go isolate myself behind fences and walls and, and, and keep people out who aren't like me or who don't agree with me. These are the subtle demons of a safe suburbia. Safety is overrated as we follow Christ, folks. It, it's hard to see that because in the long run, every time we lock somebody out, we lock ourselves further in. Are you with me? And when we close our own gates, when we close our gates down, we're playing the devil's game. Let, let us pray this morning as we end. Let us pray that God would give us the strength to storm the gates of hell. They won't prevail. Say to those gates, hell no, and give them heaven. Let's come alongside the, the suffering of the traumatized and the marginalized and the fearful who are outside of our metaphorical gates so that we can bring them in over and over and say, they're with me, I'm with them, we're together. This is what reconciliation is about. And we do this, Grace City, because Jesus has done the same thing for us on the cross so that we can live in those images of Revelation 21 and not Revelation 20. And then Revelation 21 goes on to say this. It tells us that in the New Jerusalem, that great city of God, it says this, on no day will its gates ever be shut. Don't you love that? On no day will its gates ever be shut. The gates of the kingdom that you and I belong to has wide open gates forever open because of Christ on the cross, which we're about to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Great city, in, in, in a few minutes' time, you're going to get your chance to storm the gates of hell. When you eat the bread and when you drink the wine, you are saying to anyone who's watching, you're saying to your own inner soul and you're saying to your neighbors and family and friends, anyone who's watching, you're saying this, someone else died for me so that I can live. You're saying that you surrender your life to him and that you'll follow him to storm the gates of hell 
wherever he takes you. Here I am, Lord. Say, send me. All together as a church, across this city, across the Mid-Atlantic, across the world this morning, as we take communion together, all of us are saying together, we rely on Jesus. We rely on Jesus. That's what makes us family. We can't lock anyone out. That's what makes us family. So let's stand up and let's sing. Uh, and as you sing this, I want you to get homesick with the lyrics. Uh, and then we will take communion in our seats. If you don't have your communion elements, uh, you can get them now from the back. or They'll be passed out. They're available back there. At home, if you don't have your communion elements, use this time now. Get your, your, your wine and your bread, your grape juice and your cracker, your water and your, your goldfish. Whatever it takes, it'll all work. And here's, here's some of our lyrics today that ought to remind you of them. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Amen? Let's sing together.